Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 20, Lessons in Life and Art with naturalist and artist Robert Bateman. So welcome back. I'm hopeful you're doing well and you're creating and drawing and painting. I have a uh, really exciting interview coming up, but uh, first I'm going to cover some uh, updates since the last podcast. Uh, The first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, an interesting picture I posted, and it'll be in the show notes. But it is a, uh, it's from a, when I was quite young, through my, uh, I guess, kindergarten to grade six, my mom kept a book of uh, photos and my aspirations and friends and that kind of stuff. And I was looking back and I noticed in the kindergarten, there's a version of me <laughs> that wanted to be an artist. And what I found interesting, and and you'll see it in the in the picture, it was very clearly defined gender roles as to you know, boys are doctors and girls are nurses. And um, so it's it's a bit weird looking back and seeing that. And I remember at the time I was so frustrated because this idea of an artist job was a girl's thing. It was in that listing on that side of the page. So I wrote it on my side, being a boy, <laughs> I wrote it on that side and I checked it off. And uh, so I, I I just find it interesting that full circle uh, you know, X years later, that I'm coming back to uh, to enjoying art and uh, enjoying it as as a hobby and and something that I do uh, daily. So I've also done a, a few more graphite pieces. I did some kind of weird bug. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe someone can share it with me. But uh, it's a bug on a leaf, and so I did that in graphite. I also did a, a chickadee, and I posted it in a few spots uh, online, social media, and uh, Reddit. And uh, I didn't realize until someone uh, brought it to my attention, but it's the, I guess, the state bird of Maine. So uh, I'll keep that in mind next time. I have quite a few uh, chickadees I've drawn. And for you people um, listening who are in Maine, I will do more chickadees for you. So (laughs) I uh, thought that was, um, you know, something I learned from that and a lot of positive feedback. I do appreciate that. And I do appreciate when you uh, reach out to other artists and you tell them about their work and, and comment on it. And uh, I think that's great. I think we can all move each other along and being supportive and, um, you know, calling out that that really good, compelling art that you see. Uh, it really means a lot to me and it really means a lot to the artist to hear what you think of, of the work that they do. So the other thing I tried, so if you remember the last episode, I talked about that self-portrait I did. So I decided to do some people sketching. So I went to a site called Earth's World, and there were a series of kind of stock photos in there of people at fairs and that. So if you're looking for kind of a diverse uh, group of people to draw or to sketch, it's a really great site. It was recommended, I think it was James Gurney tweeted about it. And uh, so I went and checked it out, and I sat down with a pad and um, my fountain pen, and, and I inked some of those uh, pictures. And it was I really liked it. It was kind of fun. I took that to the next level, and I used my iPad then to work on some anatomy poses. So I was working on uh, individuals, I did some hands, I did some feet, and uh, it's really kind of getting into it. And so then I took it one step further, and I drew a woman kind of looking behind curtains. And that was... um, that was an interesting exercise. I wanted something really expressive, an expressive face, so I used a few reference photos and put them all together to kind of develop that face that you see. And uh, she's kind of looking out 
between some curtains. I added some hands. I actually used a, a picture of my daughter's hands to get those uh, references sorted out. And I kind of bumped up the expression a little bit on her face. It was cool. I, I did that one, I think I've said it already, but I did that on the uh, on the iPad as well. And uh, that was a good exercise, just trying to work in in kind of a bit more, like I've done a couple of people in the past, but not with that kind of expression. So exploring that on the iPad is always fun. I used simply the um, the pencil, the default pencil brush that is in Procreate. And it was an opportunity for me to kind of explore all of that without spending a whole lot of time. I think I probably spent a couple hours on that picture, on that drawing. I think I may do some more in the future. I was very happy. I think after that is when I went back and did a couple of graphite pieces. And so I was happy to go back to graphite. But uh, I am going to venture out into some more paint and some more graphite in the coming weeks as well. So uh, looking forward to that. And just on the anatomy bit, there is a site called Line of Action, and I'll include a, a link to it in the show notes. So if you're in a situation where you don't have access to models, and you know, I, I assume they do in my city, but I don't know where to go, this is a really, um, it's not you know real life, but it the way the site works is you choose the kind of model you are looking for, and it could be um, animals, I think, as well as people, and you choose the gender and and that kind of thing. But at the very bottom, you can choose how long is the image going to be in front of you. It could be 30 seconds. I think it's up to 10 minutes. And then the image switches. And so I did a couple. I didn't post them. But it really forces you to kind of focus on the shape, right? Getting the gesture, kind of that gesture drawing sorted out, getting the curves and where the head is. And I think I set mine, I think, for three or five minutes. And uh, it was hard. <laughs> but uh, I encourage you, if you want to challenge yourself and you want to play with some anatomy um, or some other subjects for that matter on this site, uh, please check it out. It's a really interesting exercise. Make sure you have no distractions around you and go for it. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that. So I think that's it for updates. I have to say I was, was really looking forward to this interview. It was uh, very special for me to be able to speak with Canadian art legend Robert Bateman. So stay tuned and uh, check out the interview. My guest today is an artist and naturalist. His work has been enjoyed all over the world, including places like the Smithsonian, numerous galleries, and even in private collections held by royalty. He has received many major academic awards and honors, written books, and has a few schools named after him, including one in my city. His work has had the single largest impact on my art, and I know many others would say the same. Through his foundation, he is now inspiring another generation of artists and naturalists. To talk about his life, his art, and his foundation, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Robert Bateman. Hi, Robert. How are you? Hi. Good. I'm fine. Good morning, or afternoon, or whatever whatever time it happens to be <laughs> right. morning here. So, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Yeah, as far as I know, uh, touch wood. Sometimes I say, God willing, and the creek don't rise. <laughs> uh, um, I, I've had health issues in the past, but uh, I think they're all uh, behind me now. And uh, so, But I, I'll be 90 in a couple of months. <laughs> I was born in 1930, so wow. uh, if the year ends in zero, which it does, yeah, it's going to be soon. 20, uh, yeah, I was, I was born on the 24th of May, which uh, Canadians know is Queen Victoria's birthday. Yes. British don't know that, but uh, we happen to do. I happen to know it, and uh, I sometimes say, where is Queen Victoria now that we really need her? 
<laughs> but anyway, so part of me is very conservative and part of me is very progressive. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, 90 years, that's, uh, are you doing anything special this year to celebrate that? Uh, well, uh, uh, my, my wife tells me that there'll be a, a party in, in or near the, that date. Okay. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't trouble my pretty little head about things like that. All I have to do is show up. <laughs> right. So I wanted to maybe start off to talk about your beginnings. And I think it's always helpful to the listener to hear kind of how you started into, um, and I, I introduced you as an artist and a naturalist, and I couldn't figure out which one was first. <laughs> and so that's, uh, that, that's a proper confusion. Because I would I wouldn't put one before the other. Although I I think uh, to put it a, a different way of cutting the cake, I um, I'm a, an artist. I was born an artist. I think artists um, and mus- musicians and many um, probably authors and so on are often they're born that way. But I happen to be an, a, a naturalist because that's what interests me. And I think all artists through all generations have done what what is in their heart what what they really love you know with the guy was backstage at the ballet and <clears throat> and a number you know with Andrew Wyeth it was the countryside around Chad's Ford and so I've always known what's in my heart and what's in my heart is nature and knowing and understanding and uh, particularly birds because uh, they're easy to identify and easy to Observe. I happen to be looking at a, a downy woodpecker, a red-breasted nuthatch, a song sparrow, and a chickadee and junco right now, right in front of my nose, <laughs> at, the, at the feeder of the, just outside the window. So, do you have snow there right now, or is it uh, is it mostly no, moderate no, climate? No, we uh, no, we have not benefited much from uh, winter this winter. Uh, I I like snow, and it's it's uh, I like the white elements in the painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's. Uh, I also really like late fall. I don't really like the the fall color peak. It's just not me. It's too sweet and pretty and colorful. <laughs> but right now I'm looking at, out the window just beyond the chickadees. One of my favorite subjects and it's dead grass. Huh. It's it's fairly tall dead grass that uh, is actually an invasive species, but it's it's very attractive, particularly through the fall and winter. We have black-capped chickadees out here, and I don't know how many I've drawn, but it's probably the thing I've drawn the most. And you don't? Do you have uh, black-capped chickadees out? No, ours are chestnut back. Okay. I don't even. I think black-capped do occasionally. They're they're in the on the mainland near uh, Vancouver more, but uh, um, on Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands, it's pretty well all uh, chestnut backed. Hmm. And so when you started drawing and painting, you were in Ontario, so there was a whole different series of species of birds that you were seeing versus what you see now, right? Like you were how old before, when you started painting and drawing? And I got serious when I was 12. Okay. Um, all little kids love art and nature. I've, I've really virtually never met one who's had the opportunity to be exposed, who doesn't love doing art and, uh, and, and looking at nature. But most normal human beings grow up around the age of 12 or 13 Mm-hmm. and go on to more mature things, and I just have not grown up yet. I'm still getting away with this kid stuff. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, I did grow up, so I stopped drawing when I was about 10 or 12. Um, 
I yeah, actually, that's normal. Yeah, I, I actually found a a, po- a a photo I just posted when I was five, uh, identifying that I wanted to be an artist when I was older, and uh, uh. that's in like '72. So the choices for boys were things like cowboy and policeman and doctor, <laughs> and the choice Fireman for girls, too. yeah, the choice for yeah. girls was nurse and mother. It's very, uh, it's it's changed, thankfully. Yeah, uh, teacher too. Teacher was actually the only title that was in both. And so I found that kind of uh, interesting reflection of the times, right? But so you obviously stayed with painting through all of that and drawing. Did your like because I've seen there was a painting you did of of a series of birds, correct? That were in and around your place in Toronto. The, yep, the, that's right. Kind of a compilation. Well, yes, yeah. I grew up um, on um, the Beltline Ravine, as it's called. The Beltline is it was a like a belt that went around Toronto, a railroad tracks. Okay. And it followed uh, Don Valley tributaries, and it was not um, built on, and, and had a railroad track going around it. That, and it carried. Uh, this really uh, dates me historically. It carried ice and coal for people's ice boxes and furnaces, including ours, um, around uh, to Mount Pleasant. If people happen to know Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Pleasant near Saint Clair. Um, there was a, a some big what we call elevators, big tall cement towers where they stored the ice in sawdust. They got cut the ice in, at Lake Simcoe in the winter time and brought it down probably with teams of horses and put it in there in sawdust. And it uh, kept people's ice boxes going through most of the summer. Right. I remember my dad talking about that with them pulling the ice off the uh, the Gatineau River. Yeah. Around Ottawa as well. Very different times. Yeah, it was. And so did you, because I've seen that picture, I mean, it's, it's the realism, like it's, it's fantastic. Did you always stay with that or did you wander in your style? No, I, um, I was a realist when I was uh, young, as I say, until, uh, when I was little and, um, up until I was about 18 and I started, uh, going to, uh, um, a, a group would get together and sing folk songs. It was the time some of the listeners might have heard of Burl Ives. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he made folk songs uh, famous, so to speak, and Ed McCurdy and um, a, bu- uh, a bunch of others. Folk songs. Uh, there was a, a folk kind of revival uh, went around back in those uh, in those days when I was in my twenties, so the nineteen fifties. Okay. And a group of us got together, and it happened a, a nucleus, a, a part of the group from the Ontario College of Art. And uh, the main uh, thrust of art back in the 50s was uh, if you can't paint it with the back end of a broom, it's not worth painting. So it was um, abstract and abstract expressionism Mm. and had to be very bold. And um, it would uh, basically, uh, and this kind of sums up uh, what, what was happening to art mainstream art from 1900 until, well, uh, really Andrew Wyeth came along and got important in the 1970s. From 1900 till 1970s, so 70 years, art was getting more and more uh, departing, more and more just about paint. Right. And um, it started with the Impressionists, and they were interested in the, in the paint and the painterly strokes. And then the post post impressionists, and they were even more, and going working the way all the way through. Finally, it was Jackson Pollock, 
uh, who who was the famous dribbler, mm-hmm. and he just dribbled paint on these very large canvases that he put on his barn floor, and and that was where art was. It was just big marks of paint, and no subject matter at all had disappeared, mm. and um, and that's what what I was doing too. So I was uh, I was an abstract expressionist until. Um, Literally, uh, well, I was at one of these folk song dues, and um, one of the abstract artists, in fact, he was a a teacher at the Ontario College of Art, Gus Wiseman, said to me, um, just as making conversation one of the evenings, we were singing the folk songs, he said, have you been down to the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo to see the Andrew Wyeth show? And I said, no, I've heard of the Albright Knox Gallery, it's a cutting edge art snob modern art gallery <laughs> and I and I'd seen one article on Andrew Wyeth in Art News or something like that and um I said well why why would I want to go to that I'm an abstract painter and so was Gus Wiseman and he said well I think you'll you'll find he's a, a damn fine painter and I think you'll be quite interested in seeing it and here's a chance to see a bunch of his originals so uh I actually went down. It was open evenings, and I was a high school teacher, so I could uh, couldn't go in the daytime, but I could go in the evening. And um, it was, uh, if you know your Bible, well, I wouldn't expect you to, but it was my road to Damascus. <laughs> uh, and at the end of the Bible, um, a guy called Saul, who was a Roman tax collector, was heading off to Damascus to collect taxes. And uh, according to the Bible, Christ appeared to him. He fell off his horse in a fit mm-hmm. and went into this fit on the ground. And Christ said, you're going to completely change. Uh, your name is going to be changed from Saul to Paul. And you're going to spread the word of, uh, of my teachings. And so my road to Damascus, when I fell off my abstract horse, was that Andrew Wyeth show. <laughs> I saw this art that really meant something toward me because the artist, uh, Wyeth in this case, cared about the subject matter and not just the paint. And he cared that this was, um, this, you know, particular thing was an old plaster wall or was a bit of a a barn, you know, barn, uh, a split rail fence or whatever it was. And I cared about particularity in nature too, because I was a naturalist. Mm -hmm. And it mattered to me the difference in the bark between a, a beech tree and a, a birch tree and a maple tree, and uh, I couldn't show particularity with just big gobs of paint slopped all over the place. Right, and so that's why I I transformed, you know, within a, a very short time, uh, and became uh, a realist again. Do you happen to remember the first piece you did that uh, took you down that route back to realism? Um, yeah, I think it was. Um, my former uh, father-in-law from my first wife, Suzanne, um, had had renovated or put together a little uh, cabin from old um, square timber logs. Mm-hmm. He'd, uh, he'd got them from different old log houses that were being torn down and put together this cabin, and I painted that cabin huh. with uh, particularity, you know, caring about the exact logs and the way the chinking was done between the logs and that kind of thing. Right. And then you moved at some point into wildlife, like 
Do you remember your first? Was it? Well, birds? I was, <laughs> as, as, as I as I think I said, I was I was wildlife doing wildlife before, right? Um, and uh, I was always a naturalist and cared about wildlife, as I said. And I'm, uh, and, and so I started at first putting wildlife, introducing wildlife to landscapes. Okay. Uh, and so I do a YFE looking landscape. And I'd put a red-tailed hawk in it or or something like that, maybe a fox going along a rail fence or something. And uh, and then um, uh, gradually I I got rid of this anti-wildlife snobbery. Um, and the, the, I remember um, I was starting to have shows then, and I was getting sometimes art critics reviewing my my shows. My my major show, the fact still, I think to this day, the major show of my life was the one at the Smithsonian. And that was in eighty uh, seven. Yeah, it was eighty seven, okay. and and it was uh, actually uh, reviewed by um, the New York Times art critic. And that's, I mean, art critics don't do windows, floors, or wildlife; it's beneath them. But somehow this guy was co-opted into doing a, um, a review of my show, and he had a, he had quite a bit of praise for the technique and so on. But he he concluded by saying, after after all, this is not real art. This is mere illustration, hmm. and um, that got my attention uh, intellectually. I thought that that's interesting. What uh, let's see, let's follow through on that. What is what is illustration? Well, to me, illustration is, and I, um, by the way, I've never been an illustrator. So, illustration is where the the thought or the inspiration of the idea to to start doing this piece of art in the first place comes from outside the artist. In other words, um, in the case of N. C. Wyeth, um, the the publisher, I don't happen to know the the, the publishers of, say, Moby Dick, you know, the the story was written by Melville. Right. And so the ideas came from Melville, but then uh, N.C. Wyeth did magnificent full-fledged oil paintings based on the things that he had read in Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. So um, he did these, these great paintings, but then you carried a little bit further. What's the Sistine Chapel ceiling? I would I would say this guy uh, Michelangelo came along and Pope uh, Julius II or third or something like that said I w- I'm building this new chapel the Sistine Chapel and I- I'd like to have the ceiling illustrated with uh, scenes from creation and from the Bible and so I get I'll get this uh, local artist to illustrate those chapters and so. Would you say the Sistine Chapel ceiling and Michelangelo's work is mere illustration? The problem is illustration, okay, by definition, mm-hmm. according to me, but the problem is the word mere. Right. What, what's mere about the Sistine Chapel ceiling <laughs> or N.C. Wyeth's uh, paintings? That, I guess, is, is my intellectual at, attack at uh, my critics. And do you think that's changed, like to this day? Is is do you think there is? Because I read a recent article suggesting that there is this big pushback to realism. What, what's your feeling now? Yeah, and- yeah, I I think it's it's way more uh, uh, tolerant now. Mm-hmm. It used to be, 
that um, we we went through all these uh, different phases, the things that were in, you know, long hairs in, short hairs in, long skirts are in, short skirts are in, and I can remember, you know, back in the fifties, a certain look was in. Well, even if you weren't cognizant of what was going on, you would know you could look back on styles and what was in, and then and the other stuff wasn't in, and then five years later that's out and something else is in. The only thing that is not in anymore is to say something is in. What's in? Long skirts, short skirts, um, op art, pop art, abstract expressionism. Uh, the, everything is in. Mm-hmm. And now, and, and my analogy is like we're uh, going down a, the history of style, at least in the, in the Western world, was like uh, barges in a river, going along a river. And, and um, in, the, in the case of science, you couldn't have had the um, Industrial Revolution in the uh, 19th century without the, the sort of uh, evolution of, the, of, of thinking of, um, you know, James Watt and uh, the, uh, all of that uh, understanding electricity and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing led to the Industrial Revolution. And you couldn't have had the, um, uh, our modern technological revolution without having had the Industrial Revolution first. So it was going along like barges in a river. You had to have one thing before you could have the other thing. And according to my theory is we're now finished with the river. If you could say picture the Mississippi, mm-hmm. we're now in the Delta. And uh, and you have all these things flowing alongside and there is no direction. You can't tell uh, w- which way is the ocean is because we're down in the delta and all these inter intersecting and interlapping little tributaries and distributaries as they call them and so on and so the and that that's a permanent condition because of communication as soon as something you know comes out mm-hmm. it's in all the magazines and it's on t- uh, tv shows and news items and so on and so um Communication is almost instant. Yeah, so that's the end of progress. So do you think that's that's bad then in, in the sense that because communication is instant, that we don't organically kind of grow these movements or these tendencies that we move on too quickly to the next thing? Do you think that's happening? No, I think, it, I think it's great because having things go out of fashion is, uh, I think it's, it, was, it was a pity mm-hmm. and, it's a, and it's a form of snobbery and so on. And it, I think it's great that, uh, you know, everything is in. It gives huge number of choices. I, I'm a believer in choices. And um, that's, so I think that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think uh, I would agree with that. I think this does allow anything to develop an audience quickly. And it allows this, um, these works to move forward. And, you know, this global reach has been uh, fantastic. The ability for even myself as a, as a kind of a budding artist that in my 50s, to be able to reach out to people around the world easily from my desktop is great, right? So um, yeah, and, and you have these niches, and you know, and certain people, you know, they're they're probably way, way more people really into Vivaldi, maybe than there. Well, certainly there's bigger human population, but maybe than there was in Vivaldi's time, mm-hmm. and 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 they know about it, and they, uh, you know, I happen to be one of them. It's a big Vivaldi fan. 
but that doesn't mean I'm I'm into the latest thing. Um, in fact, uh, another one of my theories is there there has been no progress in music, for example, as uh, basically in the 20th century, certainly since World War the end of World War One. And I'll challenge you, just for sake of argument, you don't need to answer. Uh, name me one classical composer who's become famous since World War One. Name me one since since nineteen nineteen nineteen. Long before I was born, I I can't think of one who's become famous since World War One. But can you name me one classical composer who became famous in the nineteenth century? You could probably name me ten. Yeah, my daughter would do you a know? better job at that because I'm not the music person. <laughs> well, you might have you might have heard of Beethoven. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I could round yeah. out some names, and I surprise her sometimes by guess by guessing the composer, but uh, it's really just a guess. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so progress is over in all in that kind of thing, and the because the Delta has no direction, and I think that's great, and it's a permanent the way it is unless unless there's some disaster and wipes out all knowledge and communication i can't and i can't see that happening so you're happy with the state of uh, affairs with regard to the vela is very exciting awesome and it doesn't it, yeah cuz and you can shift your choices and go over to another little river if you if you like and it's uh, it's it's liberating hmm. now i i wanted to ask you like you've been to a couple of other places in the world. <laughs> you've done a little bit of traveling. Yeah. You've hit every continent? Would that be safe to say? Uh, I think so. Okay. Can you think of one that you... I think, I mean, it depends on how big you want to uh, uh, cut them. I, um, I've got a love affair with Africa. We haven't been for a while, but uh, been there quite a few times and taught high school in Nigeria for two years as you possibly came across. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what I found interesting when I was doing research, when you first were selling your work, um, and that was out of Burlington, right? Like that was in Ontario you were selling your work? Is that right? No, it was, uh, no, no, very, very first yes. was was Africa. Right. But you were doing, um, the, you were doing work, and I guess people in, in, in Ontario didn't know who you were. It was more about the, the, the topic was around, or the, the pieces were most of it was going back to Africa. Would that be right in how I understood that? Yeah, that's right. I went went over to Africa, um, well, to to Kenya on safari, and was and I noticed there was a gallery. It was called the Fonville F O N V I L L E gallery in Nairobi, and it was the the best gallery selling art, um, basically selling wildlife art to. Um, wealthy Americans who would mm-hmm. be going on safaris. And they were my first uh, real dealer. Uh, when I came back from that uh, that trip, I was back living in Burlington, and I was painting um, wildlife from the trip, like Thompson Gazelle and, and buffaloes and things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Fonville Gallery had, had heard of me through my, my closest buddy is a chap by the name of Bristol Foster, and he was uh, teaching at the university over in Nairobi. And he, by the way, is, is the reason we're on Salt Spring Island. He, when he came back to Canada, he moved to Salt Spring, and I uh, I followed along. He was the one I went around the world with. Okay. Anyway, I was uh, 
shipping painting, doing these paintings based on uh, slides that I'd taken in Africa and shipping them over to the Fonville Gallery in Nairobi. Huh. And she was selling them to Texans and um, wealthy, as they say, Americans. And, uh, and then, then along came my centennial year, uh, which was, as you may know, was before your time, though, 1967. That's the year I was born. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so I, um, living in Burlington, I was teaching high school. And um, I went to the, the best gallery in Burlington, which was called the Alice Peck Gallery, P-E-C-K. And, um, and I said, uh, I would like to have, everybody was having centennial projects that year, that year special things. I spoke to Alice Peck and I said, uh, I would like to make um, my centennial project painting Halton County as it was in 1867 and still was in 1967 because we're living in a, a time of say goodbye. We're destroying so much of our heritage, natural heritage and human heritage, tearing down the old barns, tearing down the old Victorian houses and putting up subdivisions. I want to record this as my homage to the heritage of, of Holden County. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Alice Peck said, well, who, who are you? And I said, I'm Robert Bateman. She said, uh, I never heard of you. And we have our standards <laughs> here. Uh, we don't just take anybody who walks in off the street. And I said, yes, I know. That's why I came to you, because you do have your standards. She said, what, uh, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an uh, art teacher over at Nelson High School. He said, oh, I think I've heard of you. Well, okay, we'll take a gamble, and uh, you, can, you can have the show. And I did these paintings, and I remember saying to different people, I am not painting living room art that's used as decor, the typical kind of winding stream and uh, you know, pretty clouds and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I was influenced by Andrew Wyeth, and uh, so I, I didn't expect to sell any. I just wanted to paint what I wanted to paint. I didn't need to sell any because I was a, I was a well-paid uh, high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So the show opened. There was a whole bunch of people. I saw there were red stickers starting to go up. And, you know, I, I left. I didn't stay till the end. And I didn't care that much whether they sold or not. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they sold out within, within a very short time that night. And I remember there was um, one couple who were thinking about buying this particular one. And they said, uh, you know, we'll go home and talk it over. We'll call you back. And um, so they called back and she said, sorry, you didn't put a hold on it. I sold it. And it was started a feeding frenzy, which uh, I had sellout shows from then on, including uh, one or two in Hamilton and then uh, New York City. Wow. And so I was always blessed with this kind of feeding frenzy sellout thing until my, well, I, uh, there was one memorable show. It was my first Toronto show. And um, I put all the prices on it that I thought were in line with what my, my prices were. And uh, the dealer called me. Remember, I was in a meeting and he got me out of the meeting. He said, you know, people keep coming and look at these paintings. They say, how much are you asking? And I tell them, they say, you're giving it away. You're crazy. So he said, uh, just to make things simple, I suggest we double all the prices before the opening. And I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah, we'll just double the prices. So we 
we just took all the prices that we decided on and doubled them. And then the opening came and the prices were up there and it sold out anyway. <laughs> and uh, and so that, that started demand going. And it's still more or less going to this day, even though my the then people would buy them even the, at that price. Dealers would buy them and then double it again and resell them. Oh my. And so people were making uh, dealers out there who hadn't done anything were, were making a buck on me. And so gradually I, I sort of woke up and, uh, and got my prices up to where the market was. Right. Uh, but that was not, was not my idea and not my desire, but it's, it's just stupidity to, uh, to not try to get your prices in line with the market. So it was, was painting or art ever a hobby for you or was it, um, no, Okay. No, I just, it was never a hobby. I just always was um, an artist and I, I would give them, give my art away back in the uh, early days, but that's, that's okay. And most of your work is, is done with what materials? Uh, well, like um, use acrylics or? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what I do use now. Okay. Yeah. It, it started out as the gouache, which is a, as I guess, you know, is a fancy name for poster paint. Mm-hmm. Opaque, opaque watercolor, basically. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not a, I'm not a great watercolorist. Uh, uh, where you let the the white be the paper, right, showing through. And I'm, I constantly um, uh, am changing my mind in the, in the paintings. I remember uh, I took, uh, as I think I already said, I took geography at university because I didn't think you had to take art. You're just an artist or not. So I took geography so I could get free trips into the wilderness to paint. Nice. And I got to the Arctic uh, twice, and I got to Newfoundland. Those were the three main summers when I was at, at university. Mm-hmm. And so I just painted what was what I wanted to do. And then the, um, the market, I guess, beat a path to my door. So how many, this is going to probably be a hard question, how many different species do you think you've painted? Oh, there was, oh, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a fair question. At one stage, I was sort of um, what bird watchers call listing. I was sort of saying, well, I haven't done a, um, you know, um, a deer falcon yet, so I better do a deer falcon. Mm-hmm. But but now I I don't care if uh, if I like deer falcons, I could do ten deer falcons. Okay, that doesn't matter. Uh, generally speaking, I like fiercer things or more, I don't know if you know the word gravitas, something mm-hmm. that has more gravitas mm-hmm. rather than something that's cute. A fair amount of wildlife art is cute and cute's okay. I went through a cute phase when I was doing a, a, imitation Disney things for a, a few years for my my mother's friend's baby's rooms. Okay. My mother, My mother's friends were having babies. And I was doing, well, at that time, um, Walt Disney's Bambi came out. And I was ah. doing Bambis, and it was an then Thumper, uh, Flower of the Skunk. And I was doing, uh, uh, I was actually cranky, <laughs> this is shameful, but I was cranking out mass production of, um, well, uh, one in particular was very popular, was uh, Thumper, who was a rabbit, right. sitting, uh, sitting at the edge of a woodland pool with cute little mushrooms around him, and he's reflected in the pool. 
with his little puffy tail pointing towards you. He's looking over his shoulder at you. And uh, I would maybe do five, get five of them all lined up and I'd be, you know, do all the mushrooms and do all the the fluffy tails or whatever, sort of mass producing these things. And I, I sort of developed a case of Disney diarrhea or Disney dysentery or something. <laughs> and there, it was just, yeah. And uh, it was around that time that I had my road to Damascus with Andrew Wyeth and started doing more austere realism sort of stuff. Right. But I had also moved into abstract as well to uh, to get out of that. But nobody wanted to buy my abstracts, and they still don't, really. Um, and that's okay. So I, I just gave them away. Mm. Now, I wanted to talk about a, a few of your pieces, and because I found, you know, there's there may be a couple that you want to talk about as well, but, you know, there is a, a segment I found online, and I'll, I'll include, for the stuff we've talked about, I'll include it in the show notes so people can follow up and, and read it online, but where you t- there's a uh, piece I think it's called Ghost of the North with the Great Grey Owl. Oh yeah, that's an important one. And if you can talk about that, because maybe just talk about it a little bit, and then I'll, I'll, I may have questions around it. But if you can talk about that piece and just describe it for people who are listening to this in their car. <laughs> yeah, the the Great Grey Owl. The uh, the whole painting is in a sense, and this gets a little bit too thinky, perhaps, but mm-hmm. is an allegory for the head of the Great Grey Owl. Um, I've placed the great gray owl in the in the uh, composition, uh, the actual head of the great gray owl, where the eye would be if the whole painting was the head of the great gray owl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got a um, the trunk of the um, aspen that's sitting in a, an aspen in the winter time, so it doesn't have much in the way of leaves. It's sitting in the aspen in a, the the trunk would be the um, axis of the great great grail, as people might know, is basically the face's two large disks mm-hmm. with a axis going down the middle where the beak is. And so the uh, one disk is is one side of the great grail's face, and, and then the axis is where the beak would be, and then the other disk is, is it, his head slightly turned away. And so that I let the, um, the owl's head dictate the uh, composition and um, and then the, the other thing about that particular painting is great gray owls are very ghostly unlike most bird feathers owls have got a little line of fuzz along the edge of their flight feathers right so when they flap their wings unlike a loon or a duck or or a crow which make sort of I know ravens do, uh, you can hear them quite far away, mm-hmm. that whooshy sound. Um, in spite of the size of big great gray owl's wings, they make no sound at all because of this fuzz along the edge of the feathers. And so they are, are really kind of ghostly in a sense. Yeah, and I made the colors uh, of the whole painting the same colors and no more than the colors that are in a great gray owl's, um, you know, the, you know, plumage. Yeah, the the palette was the bird itself. In, in, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. And I think, and I didn't realize until I saw this that the the whole composition reflected the the face. And I thought that kind of thoughtfulness around this piece is wonderful. Like, and and you hear that through. 
I, I think this is reflected in in a lot of your work, right? Where you there's a real thoughtfulness about the composition, where the horizon is, and and that, that's oh, yeah. important to you, right? Like the the composition is critical. Exactly, but I I don't uh, you know by far the majority of them are not allegorical like that great Goriel one, mm-hmm. but right. uh, but still there is a there is a lot of that kind of thinking goes into it. Yep. Yeah, and I think the um, you know the, the other one that I thought was uh, an interesting piece is that one with the uh, the I don't know what it's called, but it's it's a kill deer and there's train tracks. Yes, and the, the, a few things to say about that is uh, one thing is um, it's implied there's um, a lot of nature that we walk past. Well, I pride myself on being more more observant than the average, and maybe I am, and maybe I'm not. My wife, Birgit, is more observant than I am, but uh, we often walk past stuff and don't notice it. That particular one with the baby killdeer on the railroad tracks, is uh, it comes from a memory from my childhood, because as I think I already said, I grew up on the railroad tracks in Toronto, mm-hmm. and uh, the um, killdeers nest on gravel. They just make a slight depression in the gravel. They don't actually build a nest, and their eggs are very, very camouflaged. And their babies are um, precocious, uh, i.e., that means um, when they hatch out, they're ready to run. Right. Unlike robin babies, they're they're hopeless. Their eyes are shut, and and I mean they're not hopeless, but helpless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I'd seen that uh, killdeer. I had some photographs of it, and I have sketches of of the baby killdeer too. And I wanted to put him. Uh, where you wouldn't see him at first. The first thing you see is the uh, the rails and the railway ties mm-hmm. and the gravel. I ran into a little bit of a, a, a problem because uh, it used to be a pretty random natural gravel along rail beds, but nowadays they have freshly dynamited st- crushed stone right. that is a little bit more industrial looking. So I had to in fact, I used um, an old photograph Birgit had taken before we met. She was heavily, as she still is, and said major exhibitions at, uh, at at the Russian State Museum in St. Petersburg and so on of her photos. And she was into photography, and she had a black and white photo of a railroad track in uh, East Vancouver, where she had grown up. And uh, I used her photo of the railroad track. I used my baby killdeer and put it in there. And I left part of the painting unfinished, partly because that's what Andrew Wyeth did fairly often. He would finish the part that interested him in detail, and then when he he ran out of interest, he just stopped <laughs> and just left it, <laughs> went on to the next one. And and I like, uh, I think it's important having that whiteness going, uh, just uh, there's a freshness to it. I don't think it would be better if I finished it, finished it out with gravel right to the uh, frame. Yeah, I, I found it a very compelling piece to look at. I was uh, was quite impressed with that one. I mean, I'm impressed with them all, but I was trying to, like, you know, when you look at other people's work, and especially yours, which is phenomenal, and you're trying to, as an, as an artist, look at that and think, what can I do differently, right? How how do I adjust my lens and, and my hand to work a bit better together, right? And that one I thought kind of broke it for me. I was trying to understand where you were coming from. And then uh, I think there's a video or some piece around that where you describe it. And it was like this, and, and even like the way you describe it now, that's 
I think rather than using, you know, reference photos as the final image, using them as, uh, you know, a composite of what you see in your mind's eye, right? Especially when yeah, all of, all of my pictures are composite and almost, well, I, I think nowadays, I think you could say all of them involve my photographs mm-hmm. or, or in rare occasions, but once in a while, Birgit uh, photographs. The other one I wanted to talk about was the, the bird watching, which I was surprised by because I usually expect animals, not as much people, right? And uh, I wasn't familiar with that. Oh, the one with the, the, that's the title of the painting that has Birgit in it? Correct. Yeah, where she's oh, sitting yeah, on the right. edge of the bed and looking out at the bird feeders. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm I'm bird watching right now the birds at my feeder, and I just saw a fox sparrow, which I think is my first fox sparrow of the spring. Wow! Came to the feeder. <laughs> Did you have to write that uh, anyway. down? <laughs> <laughs> because we have a book filled with uh, birds here as well, so <laughs> we'll make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, fo- awesome. uh, yeah, a fox sparrows. They they don't nest here. It's, it's on its way through up to Alaska. Oh, okay. Um, and I've got Stellar's Jays, you have Blue Jays, I guess, where you are. That's right. Anyway, they're, I'm looking at them right now, too. No, so where were we? Sorry, I digress. The uh, the bird watching piece that you had done with the uh, the bird feeders in the background. Yeah, well, um, uh, that was uh, a little bit influenced by Andrew Wyeth, and a little bit influenced. There's a um, an artist, an English artist I admire very much. His name is Raymond Ching. Okay. And he's a he's a, an English artist. If you if you Google him, I think you'll be impressed. He's an incredible realist. Uh, I, th- I think he's way better at realism than I am. And he's got um, he's got a wonderful painting of uh, I think it's his wife with her back to you, sitting on a bed, and the the rumpled sheets in the foreground are just a tour de force. And uh, anyway, anyway. Um, Mm. That one I think is probably inspired by because I've got rumpled cheeks and sheets in the foreground too. Right, and so I um I don't shrink from stealing other people's ideas. I probably didn't give you the Picasso quote yet, which I uh, there's a number of his that I like, but this one says uh, stealing ideas from others is necessary. Stealing ideas from yourself is pathetic. Um, in other words. If you're getting a successful formula of your own work and you keep copying yourself and cranking out these imitations of yourself mm-hmm. is pathetic. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking around and seeing other artists or the real world or whatever and getting your ideas from there, that's necessary. Do you think as artists that we challenge ourselves enough? Do you think that people really are pushing themselves enough? Or do you think there's a lot of that kind of production of material that's happening. Oh, sure. Oh, there's tons of, there's tons of it. And mm-hmm. it, it goes all the way to, and, you know, and that's fine. You pay your money, it takes your choice. Right. I mean, some people um, have found a market for painting on velvet, Elvis on velvet or whatever, or, or a market for painting sunsets. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a valid form of craft, I guess. It's not much to do with proper capital A art. But it's it's okay. I don't want to say that they're committing a sin. Right. A lot of your work, and I, I've heard you talk about this before, and I just found it so compelling, and it really spoke to me that you there's two things you do. One is you you have a lot of mist or fog in your paintings, and which really gives you a sense of of space and separation. And 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 the other thing I wanted maybe to talk about is detail and the way that you do it. Versus what people expect, right? With regard to 
drawing fur and things like that in mm-hmm. in thinking about being more mindful about not necessarily the hair but maybe you could talk about what's around it the air in the hair yeah the the um i put uh i build in a bit of atmosphere whether it's there or not just to separate things as they go back in the picture i assume uh, that there is air obviously between the foreground and the middle ground and the background mm-hmm. and but i give that air a little bit of heft by by uh, as as you would know from looking at a landscape mm-hmm. the, it gets grayer as it goes further back and i i give that i give the air a bit of heft by putting a, li- a little thin wash this is easy to do with acrylic well basically white and uh and a little bit of Payne's gray mixed with raw umber. Okay. Payne's gray is as you may or may not know is a I don't use black because it has a deadening property to it. So uh, I use Payne's gray but it's it's a bit too ultramarine. It's made up of ultramarine and uh, and burnt umber previously mixed together by the company that makes the paint. Mhm. But it's it's a bit too bluey for me, so I throw in a, a tiny bit of raw umber uh, just to warm it up a little bit. And how would you do one wash, or do you do multiple between? Well, if I've got more, the further back it goes, the more more washes maybe. Okay. And I have a little uh, foam rubber sponge which I pluck the corners off, so it doesn't make a straight line, and I go pat 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 with a sponge. And this stuff, this paint is very very thin. It's thinner than skim milk. Okay. And then, uh, so I put a thin, a thin layer of it on, and and then there's bound to show brush strokes, which I don't want. So I go pat, 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 pat with a sponge. Nice. Until it's sort of almost dry. So can you talk about drawing detail? Because I, you know, I, I think so many people try to, you know, I do a lot of graphite work. So that, like, how do you draw the white hair, right? It's really that you're, you're, doing this negative drawing around it, right? You're, you're trying to highlight the space to, to, to bring that detail up. Can you talk about how you do that with the polar bear and 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 all this different types of fur, which I found just so interesting? Like, How do you think that through, right? Well, I'm because I try... There's a famous saying, you, you can't see the woods for the trees. And I'm interested in the shape of the, of the woods or the forest. And the individual trees are part of it, but if you get get too occupied with doing all the all the trees, or even worse, all the leaves on each tree, mm-hmm. you miss out on the big forms. And uh, you know, I sometimes use a vocalization, the sort of boom, 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 the big, and then there's a it's it's the, the the little stuff inside the big forms right but i don't want to lose sight of those big forms which um show up very very well in um artists like group of 7 obviously yes lauren and harris a. Y. and Jack- yep yeah lauren harris and ay jackson are good examples of showing the big forms mm-hmm. um uh, carmichael and a few others uh were, were more into the little fiddly details and so I'm. That's what I'm. I want to have both. Um, I used to just uh, when I, my my work was more 
just the big forms. And uh, that was a kind of phase I was in when I was in my 20s and going to the Arctic and doing work that was influenced by Harris or somebody. So I'd have the, have the big form. So I've got, the, I've got all those things as part of my psyche and without even thinking they're automatic. The, the way that you draw fur is um, exactly how I think about it, but obviously the execution on your side is much better. And being able to differentiate, you know, the hair that's matted and uh, has um, is maybe unclean, got, has bits of dirt in it versus that hair that's exposed to the wind and uh, is sitting, you know, not as, it, that's more protective, that's sitting on the top of the coat versus deep inside. And uh, I just think that your ability to separate that is, is just wonderful. Yeah, there's muscle and bone uh, is dictating the big forms. Right. And then, uh, and so I, I want to reveal uh, in the shoulder of a polar bear that the muscle and the bone underneath, and there's probably some fat too in the armpit area and so on. So uh, I, don't, I don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah, and I think I, I want to talk to you about drawing, but the other question I wanted to ask you was, uh, in one of your pieces, it's a, it's a coyote, and you've hidden a beer can in, the, yeah. in that uh, painting. I, I just, I love that. <laughs> I love that you've done that. I love that you brought attention to that. Um, the, he- the head of Anheuser-Busch did not love it. <laughs> oh, really? I, I, got, I got word secondhand he was upset. Oh. <laughs> um, because, well, the in a way, it's a comment. You know, if it was a craft beer, likely the bottles would not get thrown around as much as Budweiser. Right. And and so uh, I deliberately picked Budweiser partly for that reason and partly because I like the label uh, better than some of these more snazzy modern labels. It had a nice traditional look to it. Right. And so uh, I, I remember saying, um, it, it is a comment. I said, uh, you wouldn't throw beer cans around in your own living room. Then why would you throw it around in God's living room? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, it's, it's unfortunate that because you know, as a wildlife painter, artist, and these kinds of objects are starting to make their way into the environment, right? In a, in a way that if you don't include some of it, it maybe is not representative. And that's, that's sad, right? It's getting to that point now where you see this kind of garbage everywhere. Yeah, but I, I haven't done that. In fact, that might be the only time I've, I've done that. So I, I, did a par- I did it partly to make a point. And it doesn't, it doesn't interest me, and I don't need to keep on making the same point. And I wanted to take that to the next step, because you've done things like the, the white rhino, um, and, uh, you know, there's, what, there's only, I think in the northern white rhino, there's only two females left, and, yeah. you know, you've done polar bears, and how, how does this, can you talk about how much the, I mean, you've been doing this for a number of years, you're going to be turning 90, how has this affected you in drawing and and looking at these objects and seeing change over your lifetime like are, do you still feel that we can do something about this do you feel i'm i'm talking to the naturalist side maybe at this point do, do you feel there's there's an opportunity for us do you think there's an opportunity oh, for yeah. change oh yeah oh sure there there's still there's still tons of you know i i would say in the 90s 90% of good of the good stuff left in the planet the oceans that we can't see that well are perhaps among the most threatened of what's going on beneath the surface of the oceans. But um, 
yeah, there's still, uh, I don't feel a sense of despair about that. There's still a lot to love and pay attention to and to see, but it, it, it's a fight. I, I think everybody should uh, spend some time and write some letters and make phone calls and, you know, letters to the editor and all that kind of thing to try to preserve and protect these things that are vanishing that are not going to make the world a better place, but will make it worse. Right. So I, I think the onus is really on everybody, every individual. You, you don't just, you don't, not just environmentalists, so to speak. Um, so I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not one of the leaders in this, but I'm, if I, if people are going to give me a voice, then I'm going to use it. Mm-hmm. And you've done that. And maybe we can jump right into the Bateman Foundation. Okay. And maybe what you're doing there with your voice, which I think is incredible. So maybe if you can talk about what you... Well, yes, um, but I can't claim full credit for the whole, for that. Um, I, um, I I, I kind of reluctantly went into forming a foundation. I, I, uh, I wanted to uh, have a place where people could go and see my art. And, um, and so I, I kind of had to form a foundation and mm-hmm. so other people have really done all of that with my kind of looking over their shoulders a little bit. I'm not the, the sort of central driving force, uh, behind that. I haven't time to do everything. So I, right. I try to have a, a quality of life with my wife and family and, uh, the birds around me and, and doing the paintings that, that I, um, yeah, I got a list of twenty or so paintings I I could be uh, working on at any given time. So uh, that's that's what I spend my time with, and I, I have other. That's why I, I formed the foundation to have other people get out there and fight the good fight. Yeah, and I think that's uh, when I was looking at the site. I mean, there was suggestion was there was I think sixty four hundred kids have been through creating something like twenty thousand animals uh, sketches, and I think. This opportunity in the foundation to be able to connect kids back with nature is something exactly. we, we need. Yep, and that that's what happened to me. A turning point in my life was, um, you know, being a Toronto boy, my my mom sent me to the junior field naturalist at the Royal Ontario Museum. It's nice to know, in particular, if you're um, a bit of an oddball and not into sports and that kind of thing, that uh, that there are other oddballs out there like you. You only need one or two friends, but it's better than having none. Right. <laughs> and um, so I, I had, there were three of us guys that um, would have head off on our hike on our bikes and look for hawks' nests and owls' nests and things. And uh, and so I've from the time I was twelve or so, I've always had a, a little group of kindred spirits around me. And then the the, the whole environmental movement came along when, as they say, was in my twenties. And if I can do anything to uh, not lead it, but to, to to cooperate and make a contribution, I do. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, this idea of connecting, you know, using artwork to connect kids to the environment and nature, which is, I guess, part of your, um, the mission with the foundation. You know, I've yeah. only recently got into uh, urban sketching and plein air work. And, you know, I've seen some of your, like, just this idea of being able to walk out into the woods or into a park or into your backyard with a book and a pencil is, is a great idea. And I think uh, many kids would be turned on by that opportunity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let me do one minor adjustment, ballpoint pen. Okay. Not pen, not pencil. Okay. I, I, uh, 
I use pencils when I'm doing little uh, drawings, getting ready for my uh, my big paintings, mm-hmm. which you can rub out pencil and so on. But when I'm in the field, my sketchbooks from way back, well, pretty well the invention of the ballpoint pen back in the 40s and 50s have been um, ballpoint pens because then you're you're much more committed. And one of the things that is part of my history, and it's, it, it was important, I said I took geography at university, but I did, um, I drew nudes. Uh, I, I took life drawing classes mm-hmm. at Harthouse at U of T every Thursday night for five years. And um, our instructor, uh, Carl Schaefer, who was a teacher at the Ontario College of Art, would would give us about three seconds, three seconds to draw the figure, 1001, 1002, 1003. Okay, model, change your pose. And so you, you just have to do what they're called gesture drawings. So mm-hmm. you'd be and with a ballpoint and become very fast at just capturing the essence of what the critter's doing. Uh, not the critter. Then, well, in my case, it's critters now, but it used to be girls, right? Um, who were um, posing, and uh, and they, I don't know if that's the reason I'm fast or whether I was fast naturally, but I re- I took to it naturally and was able to do these quick gesture drawings, and then uh, and then if I have more time, I just keep on filling in more detail and refining it. I've also tried. Um, I also do ink sketches as well and so that's been yeah. an interesting and i can appreciate this idea that you don't have to think about i can erase that later right it's you're you are committing to that line that texture that hash mark um or the cross hatching i should say and uh it, it is a, a pleasant experience I, I haven't used a ballpoint pen but i use a fountain pen i, I want to argue for the ballpoint because yep. uh, a fountain pen to make a mark it's a it's a much more committed mark Mm-hmm. Than a faint ballpoint pen. Ballpoint pen, it just if you you can make the faintest line, you barely can see there's a line there, and then you press harder, and of course you get a thick, heavy commitment. I'll have to and try that. So, uh, so I I'm uh, I make these very faint lines to start with, exploring roughly where the figure is or the bird is or whatever, mm-hmm. and then I gradually commit myself more and more. So the whole thing is faint scribbles. Uh, gradually resolving themselves. And when you're in the field, that's what you're doing. Is you, it's it's yeah. all just a ballpoint pen and uh, a sketchbook. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. My iPad is my main source of um, of reference now. Oh, I have wow. just you know a standard iPad which I hang. Um, I've got a little string um, that hangs from. I can hang it close to. I want. I, it's important to me to have your source of of reference close by close i mean within 10 inches okay of of the bit of the painting you're working on and the one of the paintings i'm working on right now as i said is 12 feet long so i've got a little a little hunk of wire that i hook over it and a little string on the ipad and i move the ipad along uh, as i want to get be close because you lose information in less than a in about a second as your eye moves from here to there I remember uh, having students um, who uh, would be, say, doing a still life in in class, and I'd encourage the students to, to all huddle around the table where the still life was. But the odd time, one you know, or two independent students would have 
would be at a desk and their back is to the subject matter. And uh, and I'd say, that's no good. The time it takes you to turn around and look at the still life and then turn back to your piece of art is way too long. Hmm. You, uh, you should get right up there with it. Now, if you're doing abstracts and you know you don't try any aspiration to to, to paint real realistically, that's okay. But if you want to do it realistically, you have to be within inches. And so you you haven't done any digital drawing, but you use this iPad for the reference photos. Yeah, I, I have done di- digital drawing. But oh, okay. Pointless in in my case. It's it's interesting and fun to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have I have the little uh, rubber tip tool that you can do i can i i know how i know how to do it and draw draw a digit then, then what do i do with it right uh why why would i take time doing that so i can do it to show off to a you know a class of students in a workshop or something <laughs> that i can do it but that's that's the only point i noticed when you do some of your work that you use a mirror oh yes and can you talk about that yeah i i use it almost all the time i've forgotten who um where I got the idea, that's irrelevant. I, I have a mirror um, nailed to the wall approximately uh, 10, 10, 12 feet from where my art would be, mm-hmm. my easel or whatever. I often stand beside the mirror looking at the art in the mirror. And uh, I know where I, got, I started getting the ideas, and that is doing portraits. Okay. Uh, I like doing portraits. I'm, I think I'm quite good at doing people. Uh, I found that um, it's very, very easy in it to get the person's face a little bit out of proportion, so that their nose looks a bit flattened, or their one cheek doesn't look the same as the other cheek, or something. Hmm. But you get so engaged with the look of the picture you're doing that you don't notice, and then you go and look at it in the mirror, particularly in the case of a portrait, because it shows up. And and right away you go, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I've got to add a little bit to that cheek or, or whatever. One eye is lower than the other eye or something. Mm-hmm. And so um, I often I'm I'm working standing up, walking back and forth, and I go and stand by the mirror, and um, I may just stare for a few minutes in the mirror at my piece, and then walk over it and make the adjustments. Interesting. So the mirror is permanently attached to the wall in a way that reflects the, where the painting would be. Hmm. It's it's kind of hard to hold a, a mirror because you you, t- you turn a mirror one degree and the entire room shifts. Right, but you have this permanently mounted on your wall. So so my yeah, it's permanent. Can I ask you a a question? You you're turning ninety this year. Is there retirement? Or is that, like you mentioned? No, you- no, 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 no. There's, I've never, I've actually never heard of an artist who retired. There are artists who perhaps have lost their sight, or mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think A. Y. Jackson got arthritis, and his uh, right hand got, and maybe both hands got sort of crippled up, mm-hmm. and so he 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 was not able to really continue very very much. But um, no. There's, there's, that's that's out of the question. So, and I wanted to get back to like you said, you have possibly twenty pieces. Like you're still producing a number of pieces. Yeah, I, I don't have. Uh, I think I've only got about ten here now, and uh, there's a list. I've got a list of ten, some of which I'll, that people want from me, some of which I probably will never get around to. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's just there's a, a continuous demand, and uh, the, I guess this is one of the benefits from being a, a bit famous, if that's what I am, mm-hmm. is that people in Omaha or wherever may have heard of me. Like that, the big one I'm working on right now is going to Omaha, mm-hmm. and it, it widens my scope and the possibilities, and uh, incidentally happens to bring in income too. Right. Uh, Alex, uh, my assistant here, she she does the uh, the chatting on the price tag of things. <laughs> I, I don't even know. I can't even remember what they are. Right. And so, if you look back on your art journey back over the decades, what what do you think you wish you knew that you know now when you first started? Is there any? Gee, I've never. That thought has never crossed my mind. I, I still think, in essence, I'm the same kid I was when I was 12. One needs to be to not think you have uh, all the answers or even any answers. Just have an inquiring mind, mm-hmm. uh, constantly asking questions. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question, and I can't. I don't think there's anything that I wish I'd known right. 10 years ago or 20 years ago well, that I know now. I think that reflects on a journey well, uh, well trodden. So. Um, so I wanted to also ask you, what, what's maybe the best advice you've ever received? I have to think about these questions. You're, I have to hand it to you because I've been interviewed a lot, and you're asking me questions that I don't think I've had before. Best advice I've ever received. I get all kinds of advice all the time, <laughs> and, I, and I seek it and I ask for it. I get the most advice from my wife, Birgit, and she's, she's a way wiser than I am, so... Uh, <laughs> She's virtually always, well, I think she's always right. Um, and uh, Birgit just suggested be open be open to suggestions, which I always am open to suggestions. Mm-hmm. Be willing to uh, to change. I think people that know me would, would say I'm not stubborn. Okay, that's good. I'm open, uh, open a lot of the time. Uh, and sometimes people make suggestions and I just don't agree with them. And that's okay. Yeah. So... I wanted to get to kind of some homework for people because the person who's listening to this, um, they may listen to it in a subway or in their car, whatever the case, and you want to be able to walk away with something and try try to move their art forward. What kind of homework would you suggest to somebody, um, regardless of age? What do you think that people could spend some time on? I think main, uh, mainly uh, this is, sounds a bit too easy to say. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. I um well being a naturalist I think people should learn the names of their neighbors of other species so that they they're forced to pay attention so that they're looking out the window and they see a sparrow and they don't just say you've seen one sparrow you've seen them all well as I said I just saw the first fox sparrow of the spring migration while we're on the phone here mm-hmm. uh and there's uh, tons of song sparrows and so on all the, going on all the time um and uh, one of the things that um, is strongly part of my philosophy is because something is too much, is a lot of trouble, that is not a good reason not to do it. Hmm. If it's worth doing, do it, no matter how much trouble. Right. You know, one thing that Birgit reminded me, I often say. And do you think, because this has come up before in talking to artists as well, do you think we need to be spending more time? drawing. Do you think that, and, and this could be for the artist? It's a good thing because it makes you pay attention. Mm-hmm. 
often um, that's all that's all the people do. I mean, it depends on what they what they want. I had um, often there were girls. There's usually one or two in each class that I taught well, during the, my years of teaching who were absolutely brilliant at drawers. I like their drawings better than I like my drawings. They're very elegant and talented and refined and so on. Mm-hmm. And but uh, then they would. I would say that's fine so far. Uh, you can move ahead, and uh, but uh, start doing some painting. And they said, I'm afraid I might wreck it. And I said, that's okay. Just go ahead and, and wreck it, but just keep keep venturing. And often they would they would wreck it. <laughs> so go ahead and, and start painting on it. They get imprisoned by their own precious things. Right. Um, Carl Schaefer, to quote him again, the guy who taught me life drawing at night classes at Hardhouse, uh, his worst, one of his worst insults was precious. Mm. Um, you're afraid to touch it because you might wreck it. It's so precious. Well, that's not good advice. Right. And, you know, maybe I can take that advice because uh, I've been uh, dancing around painting. I've been very focused on drawing, but kind of dancing around painting and maybe I need to take a bigger uh, stab at that. Like I've never done acrylics. I've only done a little bit of watercolor and maybe I'll take your advice on this one and, and uh, try and ruin some. Yeah. I I think, I think it would be, that'd be a good idea. And the the beauty of acrylics is of course you can paint over Mm -hmm. and correct. But, uh, and, and I, I, I use the, the opaque white to correct things. Yeah. I've tried some gouache, which has been helpful for the watercolor bit, but, uh, I'm going to have to try acrylics, I think, and see what mm-hmm. comes of that. So I work liquid. I have um, a whole bunch of little um, uh, tubs that were um, like margarine tubs. Okay. That's, those, those are, I don't have a palette. I've just got a little stack of tubs. Oh. And I mix up liquid, the, as I said, about the consistency of uh, milk, mm-hmm. uh, homogenized or skim milk. Uh, and I may have three of these tubs sitting around, and I work back and forth. I may have three different grays tones of gray okay. working back and forth between those different tubs. Maybe I'll have to investigate that as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Anything else you wanted to share with the listener? If you paint for the market, it's a sure way to become a nobody because there's 10,000 other people out there painting for the market and mm-hmm. you just start doing the sunsets or whatever you think the market wants right. and then that, that doesn't come from your heart. I think that's, uh, that's very helpful to advice. I think we probably need to not think about, I mean, there's so many of us as, as artists starting out that you worry about kind of monetizing what you're doing because you love it. And uh, I think some people mm-hmm. do end up going down that path of, of following a market instead of following what's, as you talked yeah, about. Yeah, and, and it's so, I guess it's okay to be a nobody. <laughs> Most people are nobodies in a way. Mm-hmm. To aspire to be famous, I think, is a mugs game too. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of people that are famous and half of them are crooks. Right. So it doesn't mean it's good. It's a good thing. Well, I'm I'm thankful for all the decades you've been painting and doing all of your work and and sharing what's inside you uh, in your heart and in your soul and not uh, not following the markets and and I think we can definitely learn learn from that. It's awesome. So thank you, Robert Bateman, for being on the podcast. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all the knowledge uh, over 
the 90, approaching 90 years <laughs> that you've been, <laughs> uh, not necessarily painting, that, but you've been here. I appreciate uh, being so open and honest about everything that you've worked on, and uh, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. I've been painting over 80 years anyway, not 90 quite, I guess. <laughs> I got serious when I was 12. Yeah, it's, it was, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Show notes, including links to everything Robert and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 20. You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Henley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. You can also reach me at mike at mikehendley.com. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.